Welcome to Forgotten Sci-Fi. From BC Carpenter, this is the Super Velocitor. Superintendent Hamilton reached for his telephone. This is Conductor Burton of number 28, speaking from Bradford. The mail car was robbed somewhere between here and Ridgedale. Registered mail gone. I'm holding car for your orders. Sidetrack and guard the car, came the order. Call the Bradford police. I will be right over on number 31. Superintendent Hamilton banged the receiver at the hook and glared at the offending telephone. The third mail robbery in two months and neither local police, railroad detectives, nor the post office inspectors had found a single clue? Number 28 was a fast mail, making only two stops in the run from Ridgedale to Bradford. Registered mail placed on the train at Ridgedale had somehow vanished into thin air before reaching Bradford. At neither of the two intermediate stops had the Bradford mail been handled by the clerks and the train had pounded out her average of 50 miles an hour between stops with not even a slow-up. After the first robbery, a mail clerk had been arrested as the only one who could possibly have handled the mail. At the second robbery, the clerk, alternating with him, was in charge of the car, pursuing their thought that the mail clerks must be the culprits the inspectors arrested him as the perpetrator of the second theft and a possible accomplice in the first. Thus it stood when Hamilton reached Bradford where he found the mail car sidetracked and the police on guard. He was greeted rather brusquely by the inspector in charge. Isn't it a rather high-handed proceeding to order the United States mail held up? I've taken the responsibility of forwarding the mail transferring it under police inspection. I'm confident no clues were destroyed by so doing. Have you found anything? The car itself is being examined now, but so far we have found not a scrap of evidence, except a bit of mud on the side sill, as though someone had climbed into the car with muddy feet. That may help. Maybe. Maybe not. After a consultation between Hamilton, the inspector, and the police, the clerk, who had been put through a severe grilling, was released. The other two clerks also were exonerated, as they were obviously innocent of the series of robberies. Perplexed and not a little disturbed over the situation, Hamilton returned to his office. By the time he reached his desk, his decision was made. There's only one man who can handle our end of this case. Detective Crane of New York. A telegram was promptly sent and a reply as promptly received. Two days later, Detective Crane walked into Superintendent Hamilton's office. I've heard of you, Mr. Crane, and believe that with your wide experience you can help us out on a mighty tough proposition. I'll be glad to do what I can, but cut out the mister. To most of my friends, I'm just Crane. 
All right, Crane, laughed Hamilton. We'll get down to business. Crane enters the case. Hamilton went over the situation briefly, but there was little he could really tell. For some time, Crane stared thoughtfully at the floor. Now, let's sum up. Three times, your mail car has been robbed. In every one of the three robberies, there has been a specially valuable shipment. Mail clerks arrested with no effect on robberies. No one entered the car who didn't belong there. And no chance between stations to board train. Absolutely no clues except a bit of mud. That sums it up? Just about. I can think of nothing else. All right. Now let's get a little more detailed information on these points. Exactly what were these valuable shipments? All I know is that the registered mail was unusually heavy. Did you know beforehand this heavy mail was coming? No. <laughs> and the robbers did. Something funny there. Any special guards? No. And with two robberies, one after the other, you mean to say you took no special precautions against a third? Well, both clerks were in jail, and they brought another from a distant division. The first two might have been in it together, but hardly the third, who was on the car at the last robbery. That may be true. Got the men shadowed? No. They've all been transferred to other divisions. How about the car itself? Uh, what type is it? Blind ends? It's an older type car, platform and doors at each end. Doors locked? No. The end doors were unlocked, and on the trip when the last robbery occurred, the clerk says the side doors were open for ventilation. It was a hot day. And that's the trip when you found the mud on the side cell. Yes. How about that mud? Find where it came from? It's been analyzed by a chemist, and several geologists have examined it. All agree, it's a common clay that occurs all through this section. It might have come from anywhere. Clerks didn't have mud on their shoes, did they? No. And they all swore up and down that no one entered the car who didn't have a right to be there. There were no stops between stations. And anyway, an outside gang couldn't hold up the car without some show of force. No? Well, apparently they did. And now then, when is the next robbery coming off? When is the... What? Well... <laughs> Laughed Crane. Let's put it this way. When is the next big shipment due? The next robbery will occur right then. If they stick to schedule, there won't be another for a month. But in two weeks, the First National Bank of Ridgedale will make a special shipment of money. They'll furnish their own guard. Good. Can you get the chief of police over here? Yes, I'll call him now. Fifteen minutes later, the chief had arrived, and the introductions were over. Now, chief, I've evidently pumped Superintendent Hamilton dry, but there are a few little points which maybe you can clear up. Fire ahead. Besides the mail clerks, is there anyone you can think of who could have had any possible connection with the robberies? No. In the two months since the first affair, we've... Thoroughly investigated everyone who had anything to do with that car and cannot find a shred of evidence. It's the most mystifying case I ever heard of. 
Three times that car has been robbed in broad daylight. How? That's what I'm here to find out, Chief. Assume for the moment that one of the clerks is guilty. In at least one case, the side doors of the car were open. It would be a simple matter to toss a package through the doorway to a confederate at some point along the right-of-way. Can you think of anyone who could have been that confederate? Now, think carefully, Chief. Valuables like that don't disappear into the underworld without showing up again somewhere. Brows knitted in thought. The Chief drummed with his fingers on the desk. I have it. Spider Morgan. And who, may I ask, is Spider Morgan? He is a budding young crook who bids fair to become an expert if he keeps on. We have had him up several times for petty thefts. For the past two or three weeks, he's been specially flush with money. But as he hasn't pulled off a job for some time, we have nothing to hold him on. We have, however, kept an eye on him, though he's not being actually shadowed. He could not have been connected with the last robbery anyway. Why not? Because he was somewhere in the city at the time. What do you mean, somewhere in the city? Don't you know exactly where he was? We know his whereabouts, except for one interval of about half an hour. What time was that? Between 11 o'clock and 11.30. Where was the train at that time, Hamilton? Left here on time at 11.02. Reached Bradford on time at 11.40. Where was Spider at 11 o'clock? Near the station? No. In a billiard parlor a mile away. Huh. That certainly lets him out from actual participation in the robbery. And we don't know that it actually occurred between here and Bradford. But Spider disappears at the same time the train leaves the city. It may be sheer coincidence, probably is, but the question of his whereabouts is worth investigating. Yes, I have a hunch that Mr. Spider Morgan will bear watching. Now, Chief, I have a plan and I want your help. When the First National makes its shipment two weeks from now, I'm going on the car with it. Meanwhile, I should like to have you put a shadow on Spider. Start now, and hold him, day and night, till I give the word to let go. Okay, Mr. Crane, we'll do it. And you, Hamilton, I'll depend on you to make arrangements with the First National to have me go with the shipment. And in this commonplace manner was started the most amazing case Detective Crane had ever encountered. Chapter 2. The Fourth Robbery Two weeks later, number 28 left Ridgedale for Bradford, with Detective Crane in the express car. By agreement with the police chief, known only to the latter and Detective Crane, to prevent any possibility of leakage, arrangements were made with the bank, at the very last moment before train time, to ship the money in an ordinary day coach of the following train, and accommodation. Several plainclothes men were scattered through the car. A bogus package with marked bills was carried from the bank under guard and placed in the safe of the express car. Crane, 
known to the clerks in the car as the bank messenger, was given the combination of the safe and full authority to take any measures he saw fit. He decided to take no chances. As the train pulled out of Ridgedale, he opened the safe and personally inspected the package. It had certainly not been tampered with at the beginning of the journey. During the short run to the first stop, the express and mail clerks approached the safe only under the watchful eyes of Crane, and he, again, opened the safe as the train left the station. The package was still intact. The same precautions were taken on the run to Riverside as during the first part of the trip. Riverside was the last stop before Bradford, and Crane felt that the crisis was approaching. At the station, he kept his eyes on the package all the time the safe was open. He felt a distinct relief as the door clanged shut. The train swung out across the switches and he opened the door for his usual inspection. The next stop was Bradford, and he knew they would make an average speed of 50 miles an hour till the end of the run. Leaving the safe door open, sat down on a box and looked at the package. The danger points of the two stations were passed, and nothing had happened. The theory of tossing the package out of the door to a confederate could neither be proved nor disproved while he was in the car, but it had been only a surmise on his part and he hardly felt it was the right solution. What other solutions remained? Since the train had not been held up to perpetrate the robberies, Crane was at a loss to proceed for further light on the mystery. Setting back on the box, he leaned against the right side of the car, near the open door, letting the cool wind blow across his forehead. The tension was over, and he began to relax. Glancing around the car, he noted that the clerks were busy at one end. Again, fixing his eyes on the package, he thought to himself that the whole elaborate plan had been for nothing. The trap had failed to spring, and he was no nearer a solution. But suddenly, with eyes literally bulging with amazement, he stared at the safe. The package was gone. With the train thundering along at 60 miles an hour, no one near the safe but himself, it had literally vanished in the wink of an eye. One second it was there, the next instant, gone. Before his very eyes, the fourth robbery had occurred and he knew no more of what happened than he did about the other side of the moon. In one jump, he reached the safe pulling the signal cord to stop the train as he leaped. Carefully, methodically, he examined the safe and the whole surrounding region of the car. The package had vanished, as though it had never existed. By this time, the train had ground its wheels to a stop, and the crew were running forward. Swiftly, Crane gave his orders. Two men climbed to the roof and searched the train from engine to taillights, poking into the overhang of the ventilators and peering down between the cars. Two more went through the cars, 
searching aisles, seats, and vestibules, and calming the nervous passengers. Crane and the conductor, staring at the cowcatcher, search the engine and running gear of the train. Then, joined by the rest of the crew, they combed the track and adjoining ground for fully half a mile behind. Exactly what Crane expected to find by this performance wasn't quite clear, even to himself, but he didn't find it. Finally, calling in the flagman who had gone back when the train stopped, the highball was given and the interrupted trip resumed. The mystery grows. Four men were gathered in the office of the chief of police. They were the chief himself, Hamilton, Crane, and post office inspector Saunders, who had been following Spider Morgan. Crane felt the tension in the air. Hamilton looked at him coldly, but the only remark he made was, It's a good thing we sent the money on the local. They've got through. The chief was sizing him up with a cool, level gaze, and Crane could feel his scorn for the famous detective who had allowed a robbery to occur under his very nose. The chief's voice snapped through the tense stillness. Well, Crane, out with it. Crane told his story from start to finish, without interruption. When he ended, the chief's eyes were snapping. Suddenly, he darted his finger straight at Crane. If it wasn't for your well-known reputation, young man, I should say you had been asleep. Inspector Saunders, would you enlighten us by telling what you have found? Yesterday morning, Spider Morgan didn't leave his lodging house till 10 o'clock. He went to a cheap lunchroom and took his time about breakfast. When he finished, he walked leisurely across the city to Sullivan Park and hung around there till a man came along in a car and picked him up. What time was that? A couple of minutes before 11. The chief and Hamilton glanced at each other. I expected, from what information you gave me, chief, that I might have to make a run for it, so I had a car with me. It was a powerful car, but I had the time of my life keeping behind Spider, even though I let her out good and plenty. They went straight back into the hills and, from the start, maintained a 50-mile speed. They were heading up for that range of hills that runs between here and Bradford and stopped at an old deserted farmhouse on Panther Mountain. Just a minute, broke in Crane. How far is this Panther Mountain farmhouse from the railroad? It's ten miles from the point where the train was robbed, snapped the chief. So you can cut Spider Morgan out of your calculations. Both men went into the house, continued Saunders. I timed them, and it was exactly 11.10. Ten minutes later, they came out with another man. All three got in the car and started back here. They dropped Spider at the park, and he made straight for the lunchroom. I was hungry myself and went in right behind him. He handed a bill to the cashier. It was a large one, and she couldn't change it. She showed it to me as I was right behind Spider and asked if I could. I changed it for her and... Go on. Here it is. The chief took the bill and glanced at it. Then his jaw dropped.
It was a marked bill from the bogus package. Like a burst of machine gun fire came a rain of questions from the chief, striving with all the skill of the trained inquisitor to penetrate the minds of the two men and get to the bottom of their stories. Through the sledgehammer blows of his inquiry, they stuck to their guns. Finally, from sheer exhaustion, he stopped. Slowly, the incredible truth filtered into their minds. During the 10-minute interval while the suspects were in the farmhouse, the train, 10 miles away and running at top speed, had been robbed. And Spider Morgan had left the house with part of the loot in his possession. Hamilton was the first to break the tense silence. With a look of awe, almost of fear in his eyes, he gripped his chair till the knuckles went white. My God! What kind of an infernally hellish combination are we up against anyway? The four men stared from one to the other. Finally, Crane rose, shaking himself as if to break a spell. The only way to fight that combination, he said slowly, is from the inside. A few days later, Spider Morgan was arrested and given a 10-day sentence for vagrancy. Not a word was said about the robberies. He was thrown into a cell with a dirty, miserable bum for a cellmate. It was no new experience for Spider, and the bum was evidently enjoying his chance to sleep in the peace and quietude of the jail. For some hours, Spider regarded his sleeping companion thoughtfully, but after administering a few tentative kicks in the ribs, he gave up his overtures of companionship as a bad job. Throughout the next day, and the rest of the ten-day term, it was the same. When the bum wasn't sleeping, he wasn't talking either. In spite of all Spider's attempts at conversation, he elicited nothing but an occasional grunt or monosyllable. When his release came, he felt he had never had so uncommunicative a cellmate in all his prison experience. The day after Spider took the air, the bum was also released. His dirty, ragged possessions, such as they were, had been returned to him, and he stood at the gate, an unkempt figure sullenly eyeing the passers-by. Finally, with an inarticulate grunt, hmm. he jerked his cap down over his eyes and slunk down the street. And no one could have recognized that slouching figure as Detective Crane. For many days, several weeks in fact, no word was received from Crane. Then, by some mysterious means of underworld communication, he got through to Hamilton a message that he was making progress but was being constantly watched and it was very difficult to communicate. A few days later, as Hamilton walked back to his office from lunch, a rough-looking man accosted him. Give me a quarter, mister. I'm starving. Hamilton ignored him. But the man persisted and finally became such a nuisance that 
Hamilton called an officer who led him away, protesting and threatening. Early in the afternoon, Hamilton lifted his telephone receiver and found the chief himself on the wire. That man you had arrested this noon insists on seeing you. I don't want to see him, chief. I'm pretty busy. But seeing it's you, I'll come over. On arriving at the jail, the man greeted him with this astonishing piece of information. Spider says I'm the stupidest pal he ever had. Hamilton stared at him angrily, then... By Jove, if it... With a quick motion to his lips, the man silenced him, and the chief caught on. Motioning the guard to withdraw, he led the way to his own private office. Sinking into a chair, the man wearily drew his hand across his forehead. The chief stepped to a cabinet and got some brandy. Here, drink this, Crane. You're all in. <clears throat> Thanks, Chief. That's better. I've been leading a dog's life, but I think it's worth it. We're up against something big. Don't ask me what it is. I don't know. It seems, as we expected, that Spider is a member of a gang. The head of this gang is known to the members only as the boss. No one knows who he is or anything about him. Spider says they rarely see him unless a job is being pulled off. Then he takes personal charge. The first thing I did after leaving the jail was to look up Spider. Told him I was a stranger here, been kicked off a freight train and landed in the cell where he found me. He took me in charge right away, and we've been good pals ever since. About three weeks ago, he persuaded the boss to accept me as a member of the gang. I kicked, said train robberies were not in my line. But he laughed and said it was a dead cinch the way the gang pulled him off. When I asked him why, he shut up, said there was some secret about it. No one knew but the boss. The members of the gang know only enough to make them work together. Anyway... <laughs> Crane laughed for the first time. He says, The boss wants me in the gang because I can keep my mouth shut. Spider says I'll fit in right there, as I'm the stupidest pal he ever had. It's about time we roped him in. The boss smelled a rat when Spider was arrested after the last robbery, and that's why they've been laying low. But I think he's only waiting now for another good haul. I suggest we bait a trap with something you can't resist. Stage a shipment of diamonds from some jewelry firm. Suit yourself about whether they're real or paste. Well, <laughs> laughed the chief. If you are in the car, I'll make them paste. So be it. As a member of the gang, I'll take part in the robbery. It's up to you, chief, to cover us and nab the whole gang on a signal from me. And say... Hamilton, I owe you an apology. Cut it out. I understand perfectly. You don't know the half of it. It seems a would-be member of the gang is under constant scrutiny till he proves himself in the first hold-up. That's the only way I could get to you and avoid suspicion. The boss is running no chances, I tell you. Chapter 3 The Boss 
As the train pulled out of Ridgedale with the shipment of diamonds, three men left Sullivan Park in an auto and took the road leading to the hills. The three men were Crane, Spider Morgan, and a man whom Crane now knew as Bud Hansen, an expert safecracker. Crane looked off across the city to a trail of smoke floating up from the horizon. The mail train was pounding out through the yards on the final stretch of its run and gaining speed with every puff of the big locomotive. What's the game, Spider? Thought he was after the mail train. Ain't that it down there? Job must have been called off. Called off nothing. We're just playing with that train like a cat does with a mouse. Huh. Guess it'll take some cat to catch that mouse. Don't use fret, Bo. You ain't seen nothing yet. Little more was said as the auto climbed the road that wound up through the hills. Finally, the road emerged from the woods into a clearing, and the auto pulled up at an old, deserted farmhouse. This must be the Panther Mountain farm that Saunders had mentioned, Crane thought. The car was left in the weed-grown driveway, and the men entered the house. As they entered, a man stepped forward to meet them, a man whose whole manner and personality aroused Crane's immediate interest. For, though Spider and Hansen were typical underworld toughs, the boss showed every evidence of culture, refinement, and keen intelligence. And such a man, with a criminal twist to his brain, Crane knew is a dangerous antagonist indeed. We have plenty of work ahead of us, and I shan't waste words, he said, addressing Crane. You are here to join the band. No man joins this band without fair warning and a chance, just one, to back out if he wishes. As a member of the band, nothing you hear, see, or feel must be divulged to an outsider. A new member is told nothing in advance. He must find out for himself. The real secret behind this band is known only to me. Once a member, you will remain one. You leave it afterward, under penalty of certain death. And now, he pointed to the door, if you do not wish to accept these terms, you are absolutely free to walk out that door and go. Decide. Phew, thought Crane to himself. I'm letting myself in for more than I bargained for. This boss must be infernally sure of himself to let me walk out that door scot-free after what has already been divulged. All the more reason for getting at the bottom of this mystery. I'll join, he said curtly. The boss turned to the spider and nodded. Spider and his companions left the room, returning immediately with four curious contrivances. They were metal cylinders, or tanks, each roughly a foot in diameter by two and a half feet long. Attached to each tank was a sort of harness of metal straps ending in a mask which could be put over the face. Each tank was securely fastened to the back of one of the men, like a pack, the cylinder standing vertically between the shoulder blades. 
At first glance, Crane thought they were filled with compressed air, or gas, possibly a form of oxygen tank for opening the safe. But as his own tank settled into place against his back, it felt heavy, as though it contained machinery. The weight was taken by two straps curving over the shoulders and connecting in front with a horizontal band passing around the chest just under the arms. The top of the tank, just back of the head, was connected to a band which closely encircled the forehead and the mask fitted snugly over his head. These connections were flexible so the head could be moved freely in any direction. The lower end of the tank, similarly, was connected with a band encircling the waist. The whole thing, though a little heavy, was easy to carry. Motioning Spider to follow him, the boss stepped into the next room. A couple of minutes later, he appeared in the door and beckoned Hansen for all the world like a doctor summoning patients. Then Crane was called. As he entered the room, he noted that Spider and Hansen had disappeared, having probably left the room through another door, which opened into the hall. In a recess in the wall, he saw a small panel, like an electric switchboard. On this panel were dials, a controller handle, and two electric cords several feet long. Seating Crane in a chair, the boss plugged one of the cords into the machine on his back. Then he slowly started to move the controller handle, but Crane never saw the finish of the movement. A sudden wave of deadly nausea swept over him. His brain whirled giddily and his stomach felt as though he were falling through an elevator shaft at a thousand feet a second. Finally, the agony passed and was followed by a high-pitched humming. This, in turn, quieted down to an almost imperceptible buzzing in his ears. Feeling better? He came to his senses to find the boss disconnecting the cord from his own tank. All right, we'll go. Leaving the house, they joined the other two men in the yard. Immediately, a bewildering variety of conflicting impressions forced themselves on Crane's attention. First, to his intense surprise, they ignored their own car and started off down the road on foot, the boss in the lead. As they tramped along, he was still pondering this strange behavior of the gang when he began to notice another puzzling fact. It was hard to walk. The slightest movement was impeded as if by a dense medium. He felt as if he were trying to walk under water. Close on the heels of this came a third impression. This time, a feeling of uneasiness, a very familiar uneasiness. Glancing quickly at the sky, he noted the narrow strip between the trees was clear and blue, but looking around him at the trees, he understood. When the men entered the house a few minutes before, a gale had been blowing. But now, not a leaf stirred. The woods, the whole of nature, seemed suddenly quiet. 
in that ominous stillness that precedes a storm. And he knew a thunderstorm in these hills was something to remember. The blue sky meant nothing. Thunderheads could be rushing down upon them and might not be seen in these woods till directly overhead. Guess we're in for it this time, he said to himself. A mysterious murder. But this walk was a poser. That boss sure is a wise guy, Crane thought. He believes in confusing the scent by pulling the job a different way each time. The last robbery was, evidently, engineered directly from the farmhouse itself. How? I cannot imagine. And now, just by way of variety, we are walking to it. Of all the puzzling cases I ever ran up against, this is certainly the ace. Hurrying a little, he ranged up alongside of Spider. What's the big idea and a hike, Spider? The boss surely don't expect to catch that train by walking. Why don't we take the auto? Auto? Holy mackerel, here to man. Auto, is it? Look ahead of use. Well, yes, I see a touring car standing in the road up there, probably a breakdown. What's that got to do with it? Guess yous ain't blind at any rate if yous can see it, but yous don't see the half of it, Bo. And not another word would he utter as they tramped the half-mile separating them from the stalled car ahead. And suddenly, Crane's detective instincts roused themselves. Where were his wits? His brain hadn't seemed to be working right since they left the house. The uncanny stillness of everything in nature was getting on his nerves. He would see the game through in his role of train robber, but at the same time, he must keep his eyes open for every scrap of evidence he could get. And a very important piece of evidence was taking shape right now. The boss was well ahead of the party and almost to the auto. Was he stark crazy to ignore the four witnesses in that car? Witnesses who could not fail to remember the group of men who passed them with such strange contrivances on their backs? As he noted the number of the car, Crane also noted something else. The boss stepped to the side of the car, bent over and looked at the instrument board, and not one of the group so much as glanced at him. Waiting until the rest of the men came up, the boss remarked to Crane, That chap is reeling off 40 miles an hour. But the detective barely heard the words, he was staring in astonishment at the car and its occupants. On the front seat were a young man and a girl. On the rear seat, two girls, and all four were fixed and motionless as wax figures. Dead was the first thought that flashed into his mind. He glanced at the boss, who regarded him with a quizzical smile. Again, he looked at the silent motionless forms in the car. In his long detective career, he was familiar with death in many guises, and that was not death. The happy laugh on the lips of the girl in the front seat, the glow of color in the faces of all four, could be nothing but 
abounding life and vitality. Something wrong here, surely. For the life of him, he could not define the feeling, but he felt something strangely uncanny, unnatural about the whole thing. Puzzled, nonplussed, and more than a little awed, Crane approached the car for a closer inspection. The two on the front seat were looking straight before them. The two on the rear seat were turned toward each other, one with her lips partly open as if speaking. But a prolonged, close examination revealed not the faintest sign of motion, breathing, nor the flicker of an eyelid. Slowly, he reached over and touched the hand of the girl nearest him. The fingers were flexible and the flesh warm. He passed his hand before her open eyes. No response. His glance wandered over the interior of the car and rested on the speedometer. The pointer was at 40 and a shade more. Huh. Speedometer out of commission. From sheer professional force of habit, he walked around the car, taking in every detail. Something, he couldn't quite understand what, caught his attention, and he stopped for a closer look at the front wheel. Then, he sighted across the tire to a spot of dirt on the mud guard. The wheel was moving. Very slowly, but steadily and surely, the top of the tire crept forward. Glancing quickly up and down the road, he saw the auto was moving uphill. He placed his hand, then his ear, to the hood. The engine was not running. Turning in incredulous amazement to the boss, he found him standing squarely in front of the auto, one foot on the fender and leaning forward with both elbows on top of the radiator. Yes, this car is making all of 40 miles an hour. And when you have fully observed the phenomena of wheels going around, kindly get a move on yourself. Come now, snap out of it. As a member of the gang, Crane was supposed to obey the boss. As a detective, it was his duty to find some clue to the meaning of this strange occurrence. The boss had already turned away and expected him to follow. It was time for quick thinking and quick action. Was the strange condition of this party due to natural causes, or was it a sham? Natural causes seemed out of the question. One person might possibly have a fit or trance or something, but hardly four at once. Sham had a shade more reason on its side. The boss showed no surprise at the situation. In fact, he appeared to expect it. As the boss was connected with the robberies, anything connected with the boss, even remotely, must be investigated. These people might even be members of the gang, unknown to him, and the whole thing a fool stunt to get the nerve of a new man. Well, he'd wake that bunch out of their tomfool tableau in short order. Quick as a flash, his hand shot out, just grazing the wide-open eyes of the girl in front of him. Not by the flicker of an eyelash did they move. 
Quickly, he placed his hand over her heart. With a grim suspicion changing to certainty, he carefully felt for the exact spot and waited. The flesh was warm, but under his hand, he felt no beating. With deft quickness, he examined the other three. Dead, all four, and very recently. The boss knows something about this. Hand flashing to his gun, he whirled. Hands up! The rest of the party were far ahead. Cursing himself for a premature and foolhardy act that, by the grace of providence, had miscarried, he replaced his gun and strode after the others. Never! In all his experience, had he been compelled to leave the scene of a crime without a thorough investigation. But the explanation lay with the boss, and the boss he would follow. If his self-control could be kept, and no more fool breaks were made, this was the last holdup. Controlling himself with a great effort, he tramped along with the rest, trying to appear unconcerned. But his mind was racing. What was the meaning of this whole mysterious affair? Rapidly, he went over the evidence to date, tabulating the main items in his mind and trying to find some tangible thread on which to string them. The mail clerks, arrested and released. The mud on the sill of the car. The mysterious vanishing of the package in the fourth robbery. The ten-minute interval at the farmhouse. Finding the marked bill on Spider. The machines strapped to the members of the party. Leaving the house on foot to meet a train miles away. The auto murders. Chapter 4. The Case of a Fly. Exactly how were these bits of evidence connected with a solution of the mysterious robberies? He couldn't find a single theory to which he could follow even two of these clues, not to say the whole eight. To be sure, he was actually on the way, in person, to a solution of the mystery, but his active mind refused to let go of the problem. One. How were the three mail clerks connected with it? Simply, so far as he could see, because they were the only persons in reach of the mail at the time. Assuming that the first clerk had committed the first robbery, he was safely in jail at the time of the second. The second clerk had handled the car on alternate days with the first, and therefore there was a chance of collusion between the two, the second man had simply carried on when the first was arrested. This theory, however, was knocked to smithereens by the fact that the third robbery of the series had occurred with both men in jail and under another clerk brought in from a distant division, with no possibility of his being in collusion with the other two or with the gang. All three men had been transferred to other divisions on their release, and the fourth robbery had occurred despite everything. Obviously, the clerks were innocent and had no association with the gang. 
too. How about the mud on the door sill? The police had agreed without exception that the mud had been scraped off against the sill from a shoe. Several geologists had examined the mud. It was a clay found very frequently along the whole division, and no clue was given as to its locality. The clerk had not seen it at all, and it seemed probable that it came from the foot of one of the men loading mail or express at one of the stations. 3. The mysterious vanishing of the package in the fourth robbery, right under his very nose, simply had him guessing. It had literally vanished as a light does when the lamp is switched off. and the gang had been at the farmhouse only 10 minutes. A careful comparison of time between Saunders and the train conductor had established the fact that the train had been robbed during this 10-minute interval. But it was also known, as an absolute certainty, that not a man had been seen leaving the house from the time they reached it to the time they left it and returned to the city. Five. And yet, a bill that had been indisputably in the package on the train, ten miles away when Spider Morgan went into that house, was on his person when he left it, ten minutes later. Six. As to the machine that each man carried on his back, that at least could be explained with some plausibility, the mechanism and its actual purpose was wholly a mystery, but it was plainly intended for some use during the robbery. The power had been started by connecting with the switchboard before leaving, evidently the only way to do it. A wise precaution, Crane thought, to prevent possible tampering by the men. That horrible jolt to his stomach was simply the effect of vibration. At a certain critical speed, the machine had trembled violently and shaken him with it. The machine was now running to pump up pressure or charge batteries for use on the train. He only wished the whole problem was as easy of solution as the machines. Seven. On the train? Well, they certainly were never going to get aboard that train by walking to it. That was dead sure. It had pulled out of the yards at Ridgedale as they left Sullivan Park, and its fast schedule was maintained until the end of the run. And yet, Spider had said they were playing with the trains like a cat with a mouse. They had a safe cracker with them, as though he were intended to be on the car, in person, and the sole purpose of this expedition, so far as he knew, was to board and rob that particular train. Also, a curious feature of this walk was the resistance he encountered. The most nearly reasonable explanation he could think of was some peculiar atmospheric condition. Though the storm had failed to materialize, A thought did flash into his mind that the machine on his back might have a gyroscopic action, which 
with the complex movement of walking, made it difficult to move. But this failed to explain the distinct feeling of pressure against his body. Eight. And the quadruple murder, if it was a murder, in the car? His lips set grimly. The boss could explain that murder when the chief began to sweat facts from him. It had obviously nothing to do with the robberies. It was simply an individual crime, a problem by itself. And Hamilton was right. What a devilish mess they were up against. With a great effort, he brought his mind back from its wanderings and focused his attention on a peculiar object in front of his face. The object in itself was by no means peculiar. It was simply an ordinary everyday fly, one of the numerous species that make life miserable for the housewife. Yet Crane stared at it as if he had never seen a fly in his life. Bringing his acute faculties to bear on this miniature problem that had literally popped out of the air, he noted that the insect appeared to be suspended motionless in space. No ordinary position, or even a fly. Then, as he observed it more carefully, he noted that it was making headway across the road, from which brilliant observations he deduced the not unreasonable assumption that the creature was actually flying. Yet, in all his born days, he had never seen a fly actually on the wing taking life quite so leisurely as this one. He grinned as the thought struck him that an ant crawling across the road in the same direction could give this fly odds and beat it. It was a relief to find a problem even for a moment, that had nothing to do with those infernal robberies. And this fly certainly had no... What was that? Deep in the recesses of his consciousness, a thought stirred. That fly solves the problem. What nonsense was this? The thought persisted gradually, taking a little clearer form. In the actions of that fly, you have the solution to the whole problem. The robbery. Confound that hot sun! The band pressing into his forehead was driving him crazy. A fly solving the problem of the train robberies. Stark, idiotic nonsense. No! Why couldn't he think? His brain was whirling. A vague intangible idea was constantly eluding his grasp. Dimly, he began to perceive a something, a sinister something he could not define. Then it came. Out of the chaos of his whirling thoughts, slowly the grim form advanced. Instinct, reason, common sense, all combined to fight back the intruder. Incredibly grotesque, utterly alien to all known human experience. The answer to the problem pounded, pounded, pounded at his tortured mind, beating, smashing its way into his consciousness. 
then the unearthly, devilish ingenuity of the whole scheme, with all its hideous menace to society blazed into his brain. In spite of his iron nerve, his physical senses gave way in a reeling panic of terror. Staggering like a drunken man, he lurched on. His face under the mask took on the frenzy of fear. With eyes tightly shut, he swayed dizzily. Gradually, he calmed enough to stop and force his reason to take command. Then he ventured on, slowly regaining strength and self-control. As he started after the other men, already some distance away. Finally, he was able to face the matter more calmly. The solution was incredible, impossible, but like all other incredible solutions in his career, the acid test must be, did it give a complete and satisfactory explanation of every element in the problem? Carefully, he went over all the points again. Did it clear the three mail clerks? Absolutely. Did it explain the mud? Yes. Point after point was completely cleared. Link after link dropped into its proper place in the chain of evidence. There were a few gaps, but these gaps would be filled, and he knew the links that filled them. And, he said to himself with a sheepish grin, no wonder the boss was enjoying himself at the auto. I was never so fooled in my life. It even solves the quadruple murder. Say you, back there. The boss himself was striding back toward him. This is no scenic tour. Wake up! Rounding a curve a short distance further on, they were confronted with the familiar sign, Look out for the engine. Now, said the boss to Crane. We'll go through the air. I'm running no chances of leaving footprints. The train is only about two miles further on, if my calculations are correct. And on this downgrade, she is hitting 60 miles an hour. Press this button on the tank and up you go. Press that one and you come down. Crane did as he was told. And to his amazement, his feet lifted from the ground and he began floating through the air in the direction of the train. The other members of the gang were ahead of him, floating like great birds. Soon they saw the end of the train ahead of them and stopped at the rear platform of the last car. Crane, though he knew by this time what to expect, could not repress a feeling of amazement as he looked along the length of the ten cars toward the engine. The firemen had just put on coal, and the smoke hanging motionless above the roofs of the cars, looked curiously like a roll of dirty cotton laid along the top of the train. Even at the smokestack, where he knew the smoke should have been pouring into the air, there was little perceptible movement of the black smudge, just a faint, slow heaving, like the almost gentle upboil of a thunderhead. With one foot on the rear step, the boss gave his orders. We haven't pulled a job for some time, so we'll make up for it by taking in the passengers. And you, he pointed at Crane, 
This trip you are merely to watch. You'll get your share, just the same. Now, men, go to it. And go to it they did. In the train was the same uncanny, death-like stillness as in the auto. Spider took one side of the aisle and Bud the other, and they made a clean sweep. Watches and pocketbooks were easy, but rings and necklaces were a little harder. Some of the rings came off with difficulty, but all eventually found their way into the capacious pockets of the gang. Many a time they stopped to cut the strands of a necklace from the shoulders of some unsuspecting woman. Even the hand baggage was searched, and when pockets became filled, a few roomy bags were requisitioned, the contents being coolly dumped outside the train. Crane, helpless and inwardly boiling with rage, was forced to look on. He had never imagined such high-handed, free and easy looting was possible. When they reached the express car, they simply walked in at the end door. Bud opened the safe with the dial and they cleaned it out. Then the gang hunted through the express matter for anything worth taking, relieved the clerks of their valuables, and went out through the side doors. The fifth robbery in the series had taken place, and it was a complete success. The trip back to the farmhouse was uneventful. Here the procedure was reversed, each man going into the panel room and having the power turned off the machine. Crane helped them put the loot into the auto, incidentally taking note of the fact that a gentle breeze was once more blowing through the trees. As the men got into the car, he hung back a little. The boss was leaning forward, shifting the gears. The other two men were busy stowing the loot. Hands up! Crane poked a revolver into the boss's ribs. Hands up! echoed from the bushes on both sides of the road. Crane was hurled sprawling as the car leaped forward, taking the curve into the main road on two wheels. Down the road, a big police auto slowly backed from among the trees, a literal broadside of rifle fire blazing into the robber's car. The report of a bursting tire, half-drowned in the roar of the guns, a wild, sickening lurch. The onrushing car nosed into the ditch, hung for a moment, precariously balanced almost on end, then toppled over on its side. Two figures painfully and slowly detached themselves from the wreckage, hands held high. They were promptly ironed. When the boss was finally extricated, he didn't need irons. On the way back to headquarters, Crane asked, Well, Saunders, how long were we away from the house? Away? What do you mean? You've just come out. We followed your car as you instructed. We were near enough to see you take the car into the driveway and enter the house. Immediately, we threw a cordon around the building. That was 12 minutes ago, and not a person left that house till you walked out with that loot. Every man in our force can swear to that. Crane chuckled. And, by the way, Saunders, did a car go past 
while we were in the house? Yes. There was a man and three women in it. They were going at least 40 miles an hour. Crane gazed pensively at a cloud in the strip of blue sky above them. Were they dead? I thought they were. You... What? Gasped the astounded Saunders. Why, Crane, that blow you got from the mudguard must have upset you. They certainly weren't dead when we saw them, not by a long shot. Crane explains. Once again, the same four men were closeted in the chief's office. On the table in front of Crane lay one of the tanks. One of the most mysterious crimes in many years has been solved, he began, and the greatest menace to society in the history of criminology has been nipped in the bud. If you expect to learn a discourse on the scientific whys and wherefores, I fear you will be disappointed. I leave all such questions to the scientists themselves. All I can tell you is my own experience and the theory I have evolved to fit it. In solving a crime, gentlemen, many theories can be evolved that will fit some of the known facts, but the supreme test of the true theory is, does it fit all the facts? The true theory will not only explain all these facts so far as I have observed, but it can be checked and tested by events that turn up later in the case. We have had many puzzling and seemingly impossible combinations in this case, but the theory I have in mind brings them all together as neatly as do the pieces in a cut-up picture puzzle. Rapidly and clearly, he sketched an outline of the robbery from the time the robber's car left Sullivan Park till it upended itself into the ditch on Panther Mountain. Then he carefully reviewed the whole case, bringing out all the salient points. The first inkling I had of the truth was while I was watching that fly, and that, by the way, is the first instance I ever heard of where the solution of a crime was revealed by watching a fly cross the road. You may or may not be aware of it, gentlemen, but some of the species of flies are the swiftest creatures on wings and I was racking my brains to understand why this insect should be so slow. It was not hovering in mid-air as they often do, but moving steadily forward. I could distinctly see the wings slowly moving on each side of the body, and if you have any idea of the extreme rapidity with which a fly's wings vibrate, perhaps you can imagine how astonished I was. It looked curiously like those moving pictures taken with a slow-motion camera. Gradually, I began to see the reason. It seemed too vague and too incredible to grasp at first. Then, as in the burst of a star shell, the whole truth was revealed. He paused, looking from one to the other. The proverbial pin could have been heard to fall in the tense silence that followed his words. Gentlemen, that fly appeared slow to me because I, myself, was fast. 
I was thinking, feeling, moving, actually living at such a quick tempo that everything else was practically stationary in comparison. You can probably realize that a man who runs down criminals for a living must have nerves of steel. But I freely admit that when it fairly got into my head that I was probably moving as fast as any rifle bullet, I came as near as I ever did in my life to having a real shock. Here he patted the cylinder in front of him. I cannot explain it myself. I doubt if it ever will be fully understood, but this machine, in some mysterious way, was generating electric or atomic impulses that passed through my body, the circuit probably being from the band at my forehead, through the body, to the band around the waist. To my own personal senses, everything appeared to be perfectly in proportion and normal. Nevertheless, not only were we made invisible by our terrific speed, but the impulses must have accelerated the whole intricate machinery of our life processes till they were functioning at a proportionate rate. And it is that speed, gentlemen, that explains every incident of this case. We walked because the auto would not have been affected by the impulses. The resistance I felt was due to the air pressure caused by the swift movement. The quadruple murder was due to the simple fact that, all told, I probably remained near that car for less than the hundredth part of a second. As was proved by my examination of the bodies, I wasn't there long enough, literally, to feel a single heart beat. And as for the people in the car, how much do you suppose they themselves could see, hear, feel, and realize during the instantaneous flash of time that we were beside them? The same thing applies to the robbery, to all the robberies, in fact. The gang found the train stationary, with relation to themselves, and simply stepped on board, took their time about getting what they wanted and got off again. The whole thing was over so quickly that Nothing was perceptible to those on the train. The mud found on the car after the third robbery was scraped from the shoe of one of the robbers, who probably climbed into the car through the side door. The reason you, Sanders, failed to see anyone leave the farmhouse was because we were totally invisible. The shock I received as the machine started was due to Essentially, the same cause as the sensation you perceive in a fast elevator. Except that in my case, it was greatly intensified. It even explained, and here he smiled, the coming storm. The trees and bushes around me appeared to be motionless with that uncanny stillness, which, as you know, just precedes a heavy thunderstorm. The idea... The feeling, the impression of an approaching storm was simply a natural reaction to the appearance of this familiar condition of nature. Again, Crane placed his hand on the machine. I fully appreciate that my explanation must sound as wild and fantastic to you as it would have sounded to me. So, 
I shall close with a little demonstration. After that, I am going to bed and sleep a week. The reaction on the physical system from the speed at which I was living, even for those few moments, is something terrible. The starting panel at the farmhouse has been thoroughly examined as it stood, and then carefully removed from its place. There it is, over there, connected to the electric circuit in this building. Saunders' help. He firmly fastened the machine to his back. Connecting the cord from the panel, he stood with his hand on the control lever. I believe you have a stopwatch, Chief. Will you kindly time me from the instant I move this lever? Slowly, Crane began to move the lever and vanished. Almost instantly, he reappeared in the same spot. Two seconds to the dot, said the chief. Crane walked to the table and took from his pockets two watches, several rings, three pocketbooks, bills, coins, a cigar lighter, a dozen cigars, and three card cases. These he placed on a newspaper which lay on the table. There, gentlemen. You may disentangle your own property. I have finished. Three men stared in open-mouthed wonder at the table. Then three men began frantically feeling of their own pockets. They had been robbed, cleaned out. Hamilton broke the amazed silence with a laugh. <laughs> and to think, I anticipated something like that and kept my hand on my watch. Yes, laughed Crane. I noticed that. I had to lift your hand up to remove it. And where, may I ask, did that newspaper come from? Interrupted the chief. Oh, that. Well, after I lifted the goods from you three easy marks, I spied that paper on your desk, so I sat down and read the sporting pages. The chief, with a gasp, sank very suddenly into his chair. And all in two seconds.